Well, good evening, everybody. Um, I hate to compete with food, so those of you who are getting food, just enjoy. There's plenty of time to catch up on any of this, and it'll all be posted up on the website, so don't worry. So uh, amazingly, this subject is one which I always feel like there's tons and tons of content out there on the web on, and that there's nothing you can add value to. Yet, I get more questions about this than probably any single other topic, which is, how do I get funded, how do I stay funded, and what should I expect along the way? So we're going to try to tackle that quite openly tonight with a series of different introductions, um, starting with players like Maya, who we're lucky enough. Maya, if you wouldn't mind standing up, just so people know who you are, from uh, Common Angels. Maya has recently been made the managing director there. We're delighted to have her here. Um, and the angel group um, represented by Maya is very typical of what you'd find in the earliest of stages if you were going to go out for angel funding. So I hope those of you who haven't had a chance to meet uh, or get uh, sort of information from angels will take a moment to get to know Maya in the course of this evening. And then as you go from Angel, the next typical area that we talk about is seed funding, and you'll hear about the context of this later on, but we're lucky enough to have Jeffrey uh, Beer here from Seed to A. Jeffrey, if you'd like to just stand up and make sure people know who you are. Great to have you here. Um, but in the recent years, there's also been a new phenomenon, which is this whole idea of going even beyond incubators to accelerators. And so uh, some of you may know there's a great program in town, Techstars, and so we're lucky enough to have uh, Reed Sutterman from Techstars. Thanks, Reed, for joining us. And again, I encourage you all to meet and greet. Uh, that's the whole point of this, is to break those barriers down, make this really a, a transparent uh, opportunity for you to understand this process. And then uh, not last but not least in our introduction, I actually have one of my partners here, Carmichael Roberts, uh, because he's the smarter, better-looking partner. And uh, so, Carmichael, welcome. Um, Carmichael's specialty is something that I heard a lot of you talk about in these previous sessions, which is how do you do funding for not-for-profits and, in many instances, non-equity funding, for example, off-balance sheet grants or loans, et cetera. So he's an amazing resource, has done um, literally hundreds of millions of dollars worth of funding that way, uh, which is just an extraordinary thing to see. And so uh, is a master of that trade. We'll, we'll get a chance to hopefully, uh, again, have you meet with him later on this evening. The star of our show is actually not here tonight, which is always interesting. Uh, but he will be, hopefully. Uh, and that's Steve Papa. He's coming live from a board meeting. Uh, so Steve was the founder of Indeca, And for those of you who haven't sort of read that story, was uh, a wonderful example of an entrepreneur who started, just like many of you probably in this audience, uh, and built his business to uh, a billion-dollar-plus valuation and outcome. So it's the perfect story for us to have as our case this evening, because each of you will probably uh, get a chance to fast forward and, and ask him the kind of questions that Hopefully, your own, experience, your own experience will give you uh, in due course. So with that, let me jump right in. Our formal agenda is very much as posted on the website, but those of you who know me know that I throw this away pretty quickly. Uh, and in all seriousness, I will cover all these points, uh, but I want to get beyond just talking about how do you fund your startup and what's the strategy for it to the root of what is the, sets of th uh, the set of things you should really think about, what will actually help you on a practical basis. And again, uh, for those of you who haven't been to these workshops, the idea is not to give you the answers. It's to put a framework up that can get you to think through some of the challenges associated with getting funding. And I know that this is a pretty typical thing to, to talk about, but actually, this is just like sex, relationships, and money. It can get really complicated. On the other hand, it needn't. And so uh, I will just simply say raising money is just like sex. A lot of people want to know about it, but very few people actually talk openly about it. And in fact, the whole goal about this is to get beyond this issue that people are afraid to ask about it. It feels like somehow there's sort of this opacity that VCs want to protect. 
Well, we don't. We actually would love to produce a movie just like Woody Allen, except we're just not that creative. Uh, so instead, you have people like me who are going to give you the chance to ask everything you were afraid to ask and hopefully bring it all out this evening. And with that, I will just uh, try to get to the bottom line and say, actually, it is fun once you get it. And I wish I was Woody Allen in this pose, but instead I'll have to put up with you guys tonight. Anyway, have some fun tonight. Please ask all the questions you've been previously afraid to ask and get me focused on what will help you, because that's what we're all about tonight. So at the most basic level, you should know about the typical sources for funding. And they range, as I introduced the various different speakers, from angel to seed, accelerator, and then typically equity of some sort. We typically talk about that as venture capital, growth equity, private equity, all fits into that category and depends on your stage. And then hopefully, if you're very successful, you get to the place where you're a sustainable business in your own right, and you can actually be a public company, and you don't need anybody to uh, raise money from other than a public marketplace. So that's a, a typical kind of, if you like, framework for you to think about. But there are a lot of other ways to raise money. And in particular, in the early stages, they can be really important to think about. So obviously, the best one of all is if you never raise money because you're successfully able to bootstrap your business. Uh, the first business I did, I was lucky enough to bootstrap to being a whatever it was, a $20 million plus business, and very profitably, before we raised VC and screwed everything up from there. I learned more in that process than any other period in my life, I will tell you. And I'm very privileged tonight to actually have the investor who made that uh, bet on me, uh, Rich Damore, with me. So Rich, just want to have you introduce yourself since everybody wouldn't typically get a chance to meet uh, somebody of his uh, caliber. So Rich is my partner and now friend. 31 years later, we're lucky enough to work together. Uh, but I learned the hard way, you know, what I'm going to tell you tonight. And that was the whole point of this series, was to make this real and to give you a chance to go and think about the things that hopefully, if I had had somebody uh, back 30 plus years ago, who could have told me all this, would avoid a lot of the mistakes that I made. Now, with that said, um, there is a very important thing that's evolving here. And I want to make sure that this feels like an open agenda and a dialogue. Honestly, VC is changing. And indeed, the way funding is, is uh, coming to market is changing. So you've got all sorts of new alternatives like crowdfunding. And I'm not going to get into this in detail tonight because it just isn't time. But I encourage you to look at these too. I mean, for example, for businesses, you have companies like, uh, sorry, funding sources like AngelList, which uh, are very uh, successfully helping entrepreneurs get to the uh, initial sets of funding that might be helpful uh, in your case. And for, for example, products and services, you've got things like Kickstarter, which I'm sure many of you have seen have helped people not only to raise money, but in some cases validate um, their product or service even before it's actually funded, which is quite exciting. So I think this is an evolving landscape, which is an exciting part of, of uh, the learning opportunity for me too. And I'd love to hear from any of you uh, either live tonight or in follow-on what you see is changing, what you think works for you, what you think needs to change, and how this should evolve. OK, so what should your funding strategy be? Well, one obvious thing to state here is in some cases, you should not raise money. I mean, if you don't have a need, don't raise money. And there are a lot of personal issues that play into this. For example, are you somebody who's very risk averse? If you are, taking somebody else's money is probably not a good idea uh, because you're putting them at risk and a lot of pressure on yourself. Uh, that is, if you have any uh, ethics or scruples. Um, and in another instance, there's, there's reasons why you wouldn't raise money too. Lots of people want to run what I would describe as a lifestyle business, which is perfectly successful in some form or another uh, in generating, say, cash flows to support their own income, but may not generate enough returns to invest in hiring people or building a, a, a large business. And by the way, lifestyle businesses are uh, not necessarily small. To give you an example, there's a company that's about a $2 billion lifestyle business. Maybe some of you have heard of it called SAS Institute. 
There's a, a fellow called Goodnight who has a very nice lifestyle, trust me. Uh, his wife built a hotel nearby that I ha happen to stay at regularly. He figured out how to do it all without taking external capital. So you don't have to think about this as just being small. It's really just a choice. And it depends on your personal profile for things like risk and obviously the kind of hard work that you want to put into things and how you approach things. The point being here, think about this first before you even get into any of the rest of this presentation because it is very much about what you personally are looking to do and how you're looking to do it. And funding follows from that. So what's an overview to think about? Well, um, as most of you know, frameworks are always uh, there to be torn down and, and built back up. So this one changed about five times as I went around a few entrepreneurs and I asked them, what do you think is the process of building a business? You know, can you give me some discrete stages and what do you think they would be? And these are the stages that I heard from people. Uh, ideation, confirmation, which was a different word than I'd thought of, uh, creation, validation, repeatability, et cetera. The point being is that there are some distinct stages that people think about when they're building a business. And your funding really needs to follow along with these. So let me give you a sense of, of what I hear and what we see as VCs and in terms of how to think about this uh, as we go through this. But before I even start that, I want to share a startup secret right away. There are two great times to raise money. Anybody know what they are? Go ahead. You're already making money? Uh, you don't need it. Well, um, possibly. Um, certainly, I think that if you're, if you're making money, you're going to be a very attractive candidate for people. But if you're making a lot of money, you may not need to raise it. Um, and that's your second point. If you don't need it, then that could be a great time too, because people are going to say, okay, well, so why is this person raising money? So thank you, that's a, that's a great example. Uh, I'm not going to add that to my script too. Uh, what else would people say is a good time to raise money? If you have, for example, a brand new venture and it's full of potential, is that a great time to raise money? See lots of heads nodding. So I think that's one of the times for sure. The other time is when you have all the proof. So I just simplify it as this. All the potential makes you really attractive because people can get, hopefully, if you pitched it right, really excited about it. But guess what? They've got absolutely nothing that they can disprove at that point because there's nothing actually proven. So it's a very good time to raise money. And a lot of entrepreneurs find out how to develop that perfect pitch we talked about last, um, last session. And they do it in a way that obviously sets out all the opportunities so that somebody can get excited about it. And that's a great time to raise money. As you move down the road and you start to get data points about, for example, whether the product is actually working, whether the customers like it, whether your business model is actually you know, playing out, et cetera, of course, everybody starts to do the diligence that then makes it possible for them to create their own theory about how your business will evolve. And that gets a lot tougher. And so it's a much trickier proposition until, of course, you get to the place where you've got plenty of proof and now instead of being a bunch of jumbled data points that everybody has a hard time figuring out, you hopefully get a vector that you can clearly show is going to lead to a valuable company. That's another great time to raise money. But life isn't that simple. And unfortunately, you're going to need to raise money multiple times. So what I'm going to recommend is this. Try to break up this overview, whatever these words are that you want to use, and think about what are the milestones at each point in time where you can either build great potential or have enough proof to move to the next stage. If you don't have those two things, don't go and raise money. Figure out how to get beyond those points. So in the early stages, a lot of what people struggle with, and I literally hand wrote this because I want you to get the feeling that this is fluid, 
is how do they take an idea and validate it or confirm it in some kind of a way with enough people to get to a place where they go, you know what, this is worth building a product around or this is worth building a company around. And if you don't get to that, to the point I was making earlier, don't move forward. Don't try to raise money. Figure out what is it that you learned, what are the things that didn't get confirmed for you, and what questions do you still have, and how could you go and address those questions? Because if you don't address them, you can sure as heck expect them to come up with a VC or uh, an angel or anybody who, for that matter who's going to uh, try to fund you. So I'd always say it simply like this. Ask the hard questions of yourself before they get asked of you. Um, so what, what typically in this early stage I think makes a great basis uh, to develop this kind of, if you like, initial critical mass is things like you know, paper prototypes that you can take out to initial potential customers and engage with them, help them figure out, you know, in many instances, uh, not the product, by the way, and this is an important point, I'll come to that in a second, but what, what, what problem are you really solving for them? For those of you who haven't seen it, I have a whole workshop on this, which is the value proposition workshop. And it's designed to really help you focus in on how can you specify that problem so well that when the customer hears it, they go, I would pay money for that if you solve it. And that's what you're looking for, is basically that kind of feedback. Now, you're not literally, in some instances, going to get them to, to write you a check. But if you can, get them to write the check. Get them to literally say, OK, if you build this, I'll pay for it. And then your response should be, well, if it's that painful, why wouldn't you invest in me building this with you? And believe me, that's actually how a lot of great companies get started. It's a great means to bootstrap. No better money than a customer's money. But if you can't get that, then at least get to the validation of your problem. Get real clarity. There's a wonderful statement. I'm sure many of you have heard it. The head of GE's innovation actually came up with it, which is a problem well-defined is half-solved. And that's what I look for at this stage. Um, we always say the worst thing you can do is to go hurtling down building your product without validating whether it actually meets any need or solves any problem. And I've got to tell you, that's the number one mistake we see at the early stage uh, with entrepreneurs. They're so excited about the potential to build something. They've got this lean startup book, and they've nailed the minimum viable product, but they haven't figured out who it's for or what problem it solves. That is not a seed investment that is going to succeed in my book. Uh, now, there might be people who disagree with that. Uh, and there certainly are instances, by the way, where that is um, you could easily you argue, for example, not going to be the case. And you know, consumer investing is a good, good uh, case in point, where you probably do have to build something before you know, people really understand what it is. Uh, in fact, just to make it very clear how uh, wrong this can be, there is a whole piece on, on the value proposition workshop I talk about where people may have latent aspirational needs. An example would be, who thought they needed an iPad five years ago? Probably nobody, because we didn't even know the thing existed. But now, anybody who's got an iPad will probably very quickly tell you that it's become indispensable, whether they're using it for Skype and conferencing in business or whether they're using it just for personal watching of videos and uh, you know, playing of games. But the point is, even in that instance, I would encourage you very early on to figure out how you might validate uh, what it is that is the opportunity ahead of you, and then move to the next stage. So this piece here is typically friends and family funding, uh, seed funding, and A funding. Uh, the difference between seed and A is something we're going to discuss later on. But uh, what I would want to point out here is that there is an apparent Series A crunch or crisis out there, and there's a reason for it. Those of you who are not rock star, uh, sorry, rock uh, fans, 
I grew up in England, and this was a band that was important to me in those days, Supertramp. This is one of their best albums, Crisis, What Crisis? So um, uh, I remember listening to this many times and thinking, there'd never be a crisis in my life. life. Life was good. We were just students listening to rock. It couldn't get any better. Unfortunately, the real world's a little different. If you get your seed and your Series A funding, it doesn't mean to say you're done. And in many instances, what's happening is, in fact, uh, a phenomenon that uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, with Jeffrey later on, which is people are getting their, series a, sorry, their seed funding because people are just willing to throw money out there to see what works. But you, as the entrepreneur, have to actually invest your life. So the money is not a big deal to the investor, but your life should be to you. So the point here about this is there's a crisis here that I want you to think about one step ahead. In other words, if you take your seed and Series A product, uh, uh, Series A funding, how will you move to a place where you have enough value, for example, a product, not just a vision, that will give people confidence to make the next investment in you? Because if you're not going to do that with your Series A, sorry, with your seed, then you're unlikely to get your Series A funding, and you're going to find yourself in the middle of this crisis, this Series A crunch because there are way too many seeds being done, and there's nowhere near enough capital available to do the follow-on for all of them. So you own this, even though people are, in my opinion, at fault for what I call the spray and pray seed investing. Ultimately, because I'm telling you about this tonight, it's up to you to make sure you stay clear of it. You should be thinking ahead about where do you get to with your seed funding, and how does it put you in a position to justify people saying, yep, we should invest more money in you. Okay, that's probably the worst bit of news I was going to give you tonight. We're, we're on to the more fun stuff now. Um, assuming you get past Series A, we're hopefully getting to a place where not only you built a product, but for Series B, C, D, you're showing things like customer validation and better still references once you get a number of them. And then as you get into later stage uh, rounds, how your go-to-market really works, building beachheads, getting your segments that are defensible and so forth. And uh, ultimately, I've, uh, there are, by the way, workshops on each of these things up on the site for those of you who want to go check it out. Um, and ultimately, each of these things should generate, at some point, a clear business model that shows how you're going to make money. I don't think many people put this up front, but um, I would also point out that although I've laid this out nice and cleanly, I also threw it up here as handwriting for a reason. You could change the order of this. You could do all this in parallel. There is no right way or wrong way to do it. But the point is, again, at each stage, you're trying to move down the field, as it were, to show more and more proof of how you're going to build a valuable company. And so whether it's through customers or your go-to-market becoming more um, repeatable or scalable, or your business model ultimately getting you to a place that you're profitable, each milestone is the basis on which you should be able to show value to any potential investor that would cause them to believe that you can get to the next place and to ultimately a place where you can IPO the company. Now, investors on the other side of this are looking at two things. They're looking at how are you decreasing their risk all the way through this process, and how are you increasing the value all the way through this process. And at the end of the day, when you want to be a public company, they'll be looking for one thing, which is a financial model that shows tremendous leverage to generate high value for low investment. And that's obviously uh, a tall order to start with, but I'm a big believer that if you start with the end in mind, it helps. So be thinking about that as you go through building out your business plan, however you want to uh, state that, and how you will define your own milestones. And think about how each of the milestones will cause an investor to say, yep, this person's decreased the risk since they were last here. 
and they've increased the value and they're showing clear progress, so why wouldn't I invest? Why wouldn't I take the next step with them? Because I can see they're thinking all the way through to how to build a valuable public company. Or if you're a private, non-for-profit, perhaps it's a sustainable, independent entity that can continue on its cause. Uh, and there's some wonderful examples that uh, Carmichael can share with us later on in that regard. Now, there's one thing I purposely left off this slide. And uh, I'd just like to know whether anybody uh, can give me some hints as to what's missing on this slide. I mean, there's lots of things, but there's a really, really important piece of building a company. It's not even on here. Management. Who said that? 11 out of 10. Uh, it's actually not just management, it's team. But management's a great place to start. We are always looking all the way through this process at how are you building that team. Because guess what? In the end, this is a people business, particularly in the tech world. Most of your IP walks out the door every night. So we really do want to understand what are you doing at each step to build a team that in of its own right can stand alone and grow the kind of business that could become either, as I said, a sustainable entity as a not-for-profit or ultimately a strong public company. And I can't tell you that there's any right answer to how you build your team. It's a whole subject. In fact, again, there's a whole post on this on the site uh, about hiring and building the culture and everything else underneath this. But I will tell you, it's probably the most important thing that's not on this slide for sure. And certainly as an investor, the thing we're constantly thinking about. Has the founder, for example, figured out how to build around their strengths and weaknesses to put themselves in a position to be successful in doing things like shipping a product and actually getting it into customers' hands, supporting those customers to become successful references? All of those skills are different. And we're looking for people who can obviously, uh, in self-aware sense, build around themselves throughout this process. So hopefully, um, if I just pause here for a second, you now have at least a sense of how funding follows the build of the company and how you should try to find your, uh, your way through at least making progress on a milestones basis from each round. But again, I want to be very clear. It's not an exact science. It's not like for every Series B, you've got to have reference customers. Uh, it can depend hugely on your, on your uh, particular business. Uh, to give you an example from, from our own portfolio, we had a company called Starrant that went for literally uh, 24 months without getting a dollar of revenue. You might say, wow, that sounds like a high-risk company, and what happened to it? Well, good news is it ended up being a $2.8 billion exit six years later. Uh, so it probably was one of the toughest Series Bs I remember having in our office, but one of the best IPOs and the later acquisitions by Cisco. So it's not a perfect science, but again, the principle is building value, reducing risk, and being able to show progress at each stage. Any questions before I move on on this one? Because it's pretty fundamental. I've got one in the back there if we could get a mic to you. Why do you have the business model and the financial model way down the line ahead of the product? Like, so shouldn't, shouldn't you have the business model and your fiscal model and how you're going to not just see the problem, but how much people are willing to pay for it ahead of developing the product? Isn't that part of the ideation and the creation? Fantastic. Um, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> Um, so I think it's great that you raised that because the, the point about me literally just throwing this up in handwriting is it's totally malleable when you would spend time on this. But I think the point you were making, which was really good, is right up here, all of these elements actually need to be part of your thinking. The product, the, uh, the model that you take to market in, uh, and the business model that will fall out of that. All of that, I think, is a great thing to take through your initial thinking. And even if it's just the most basic level of thinking about the packaging and pricing, for example, or distribution channels, or uh, what it is that, for example, might be 
uh, the cash requirements of, of delivering the product. All those things are great to think as early as possible about. So yes, thank you. I mean, thanks for pointing that out. And in fact, again, for those of you who haven't been to previous workshops here, we talk about this as all part of the critical uh, sort of, if like, initial uh, piece of thinking through how can you make an impact? What is it that you're going to do that is uniquely differentiated? And I'm a big believer, to your point, the business model, for example, can sometimes be more important than even the technology breakthrough. Um, there are plenty of examples of that. There's a you know, multi-billion dollar company called Red Hat that didn't innovate, actually, uh, in a product sense. They actually you know, do nothing other than sell open source software. Uh, but their business model of delivering the value behind open source is so unique, it's built a multi-billion dollar valuable company. So yes, great question. And does that answer it? Great. Uh, any others before I move on? OK. Well, let's keep rolling. Um, what I want to do here is very quickly run through each of the uh, types of funding that I put up as sources. So angel funding, um, I think probably most people would know this as a wide variety of forms it takes. It's usually a few thousand to a few million dollars. Uh, it's typically from individuals. Um, and uh, as Maya is going to share with us, uh, can be through networks. So um, I'm just going to ping one question at Maya uh, to get you a sense of, of what's different about common angels. Uh, and then we'll have Maya available, as, as I said, at the end for you to talk to. So, so Maya, if you wouldn't mind just popping up here for a second, what is the benefit of having an angel network? And, and give us a little bit of a sense of, of common angels in this, in this scenario. So I think um, just like in any asset class, and this, you know, this is a sub-sub-sub-asset class, it has evolved. And it's evolved because the marketplace has become more and more competitive. And I um, in Common Angels instance, uh, and, and in, we're not the only one who has evolved this way. There's a group on the West Coast called Tech Coast Angels who has also evolved from um, just individuals making investments to a group making investments and then to a fund. And the, and the main reason for that is the entrepreneur has the perception that angel capital can be challenging. Um, and, and I think there are real examples when uh, that happens to be true. But the benefit for the entrepreneur at the very early stage in getting an angel um, who has that domain expertise that, you, you know, that you're developing your company for, if you can find the right person to help you think through channels or distribution or product design or what, as Michael said, what's the real problem you're trying to solve? That th the right angel investor can propel you in ways that it, it that will help you um, sort of sh uh, shortcut many many mistakes, and I think um, it's it's uh, I, I said this to Michael earlier. Choose wisely, right? So any source of capital, whether it's venture or angel or seed. Uh, you, two, you two are doing just as much interviewing as they are of you. You want to find the right partner to help you grow your business. That's great advice, Maya. Uh, so just to give Maya one little plug here, uh, you know, we'll, we'll put up some of the portfolio companies. There have been some fabulous companies that have been funded through mm -hmm. angel funding. And the benefit of, of having an angel like Maya or uh, a network like the Common Angels is that they're angels who've understood that it's important to structure things right from day one. So they don't end up with crazy uh, you know, term sheets and, and instruments that then are very difficult for a Series A investor to follow on with. So I'm lucky enough to have backed, for example, some of the companies that have come on from Common Angels. And 
I will tell you that that's one of the big benefits of having an angel network work with you. So thanks, Maya. Okay, so next up is seed. I've already alluded to this, and I'm just going to put it very bluntly. Uh, there are two forms of seed in my book, and it's pretty binary. Uh, the first form is kind of like this guy is spraying the seed out there, is literally the spray and pray approach. And I hate to say it, but there's way too much of this going on. And each of you has to think carefully whether this is right for you. What I mean by this is basically people are putting out so much capital, there's no chance of them taking the time and energy that, for example, Maya was alluding to earlier, that will enable you to get real value beyond just the money. And honestly, money is not your biggest challenge. It may be, at the first instance, the thing you think you need most. But the soon as you get the first capital flowing in your business, there are going to be a 1,000 questions that come up. And that's when it's really important to have somebody who's not only going to spend time with you and mentor you, but also going to help you develop, obviously, what is the next stage of your business. And that's beyond seed. How will you fund, fund it? So the Series A crunch I talked about is because there's not enough follow-on to do that. Mm -hmm. But the really important point is it actually starts right away when you get your seed figure out whether somebody is already committing. If you do a bunch of these things and meet those milestones, will they do your Series A? And if they're going to do that, they fall into the second category. They're what I would describe as the C to A investors, who are saying to you, look, we'd love to do your Series A, but there are a few things you need to go prove and validate up front. And if you do that, then we're going to be there with you to follow on. Now, that may not happen for all the reasons that you might miss, or they may not feel like you've, you've done it, but at least start out with the right expectation. And so I encourage you right up front to clarify this. And we're lucky enough to have Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Beer from C2A, who's got his own viewpoint on this and spends a bunch of his time at the iLab here uh, helping entrepreneurs on these issues. So Jeffrey, can you give us a sense of how you think about this and, and what entrepreneurs should take as advice? I got the right domain for this topic, didn't I? You did, yeah. Uh, so Michael and I used to work together. We've known each other for 20 years or so. Uh, I want to add a little bit to what Michael said about kind of seed investing. There's a decision you need to make as an entrepreneur, which is what are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to build a company that's going to require 20 to 30 to 50 million dollars in capital, which would take you down a path to say, yes, you know, you want to head towards that venture path and build your company that way. But there are a lot of businesses, potentially many in the room here, that don't warrant raising 20 to 30 to 50 million dollars. You may not be building that big of a business. You may be building something that you today only see the potential to build a hundred million dollar business, not a billion dollar business or you may not know. So what I'm advising entrepreneurs to do is to just think differently. Am I raising seed to get through Series A, which is one path, or am I raising seed to prove a certain set of metrics that give me the flexibility later on to decide, will I take that venture path, or will I finance my business differently because I can't justify a proper venture investment? Um, and the way to do that, I pitch, is to think about the way we think about agile engineering. Mm -hmm. Apply that to your business. How do you get those proof points early? How do you, as Michael said, reduce risk and increase value early? So if you can yourself raise a small amount of capital, angel or seed investment, to answer those questions, get further down the road so you can make a decision. Do I take the path that says, let me take the express train to that venture path and I have an IPOable company here? Or gee, it's not as big as I thought, but there's an interesting business here. Because a business that only raises three to five million dollars but exits at 100 to 300 million dollars is a very nice investment if you can find one of those. But that is not necessarily interesting to the venture community, and you want to know that up front. Great. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. So I think those of you who haven't had a chance to meet Jeffrey, I encourage you to do so afterwards. This is like anything, um, being careful about upfront, um, you know, uh, having the thought upfront about where you want to head is the best way to get yourself there. 
And as Jeffrey nicely depicted in this uh, railroad track, unfortunately, if you get off track, it's hard to come back with investors. So um, I mentioned this earlier. I'll just simply put it as, as follows, which is there are a series of things that people typically will say they want you to do in your series A, uh, sorry, in your seed. Um, but I'm going to encourage you to, to do one thing above all. Uh, I mentioned specify the problem so that you can really be clear about that. In the end, what we're looking for is for you to have been thoughtful enough to say that you have validated that this is a business worth investing in. And for you, that means your life. <laughs> I would just focus right in on that. Never mind the capital you're going to raise. Just ask yourself, do you want to invest the next several years of your life in this business? Even if somebody's willing to write you a check, ask yourself that question. Because on average, it takes six to eight years for companies to build serious value or get public or acquired. That's a long time. So even if somebody's offering to give you lots of money, because there's plenty of capital out there, question yourself for a second. Are you ready to go the distance? And that should really be the basis on which you personally go through your own confirmation, if you will, about whether your seed has got you to a place that's worth getting a Series A. Now, fortunately, there are people who can actually help you with this. Uh, and we're lucky enough to have one in the audience. So I'd like to invite uh, Reed uh, from Techstars up here to just share with us how can you get help around that and what is the idea behind the accelerator program uh, such as you run at Techstars? Well, thanks, Reed. Michael. Um, so I first want to say if you look at the different accelerator programs out there, I'm going to speak only from my own experience, which are accelerators that have a business model as investors. So at the early stage, there's only four hats you can wear. You're a founder vendor, investor, or you could be a donor. So if you follow the ideas, you follow the money, you can tell the difference between an investor or a, uh, a vendor, like a landlord. Um, there are Mass Challenge is another program in Boston, which is really not an investor. They don't take equity in your company. So Techstars is very much a miniature version of a venture capital business. We have investors ourselves. We invest into companies that join our program. We can only survive as tech stars if you succeed and if we can pay back our investors. So we're extremely, extremely aligned with your success. Uh, it's a small amount of time, a small amount of money. So at, uh, from the outside, sometimes it's hard to see what you get. If, you're, if we're giving you an $18,000 check for 6% of your company and it's only a three-month program, how much can really happen? So that's, that's one thing to, to realize is that there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. We have a couple hundred mentors that the, the community bands together to support you. Um, we do have strong results. So my business partner, Katie Ray, and I two years ago took on the Techstars program in Boston. In two years, we've run uh, it's $2 million fund, half a million dollars invested, actually only a couple hundred actually directly invested in each program. We have invested in 52 companies. There's a session going on right now. Um, you have about a less than 2% chance of getting in if you apply. Uh, two years is not a long time to look for results. I mean, it's hard to even go out of business in two years. So if we look at our oldest cohort, 2011, we invested, let's call it half a million. Um, a hundred times that capital has been invested after us. We've had two of the uh, 12 companies hit break even. Some of them go raise up to 13 million, you know, from brand name uh, investors. So there's something there that works. If you can get in, it's, it's a 
wonderful, wonderful way for first-time entrepreneurs or people who are switching domains. We had a HBS grad who had done a successful venture-backed business, had raised a couple, you know, $20 million in his past. He was a mentor. With his next company, he applied and we took him into the program. He was the first time that he was doing a consumer-facing company. So that was his, his rationale. And at the end of the program, he said, I learned in Techstars what I thought I'd learn at HBS. <laughs> so there's a, there's a lot of value. If Careful you can they're paying our rent. So if you can get into one of the top accelerator programs, if you're a first time entrepreneur, it's a rapid, rapid way to learn, to build a network, and to learn from each other. So 52 companies, maybe 300 investors in those companies. The companies tell stories about the investors, just as investors tell stories about you. You can talk about okay, this particular partner, this particular angel, what do they really like to work with? What do they like during the process? So it's, it's a great family to join if you can get in. Great, Reed. Thank you very much. I've been delighted to be into It's been a terrific program. There have been some great companies that come through it. And as you can hear from Reed, what's great about it is it's really sort of a concentrated way to get a bunch of different facets of your business tested early and accelerated through a process of proving whether you've got something that's obviously worth taking the distance. So great to have you here, Reed, again. I hope others will uh, get to meet you afterwards. Okay, last but not least, uh, I'm going to call on my partner, Carmichael Roberts, in a second to talk about this. But there's a whole raft of ways that, as I put up on that list earlier, uh, you can get capital that is not equity dilutive, and um, in some cases, maybe off balance sheet. And that's through strategic partnering, government support, and in particular, uh, if you're a not-for-profit business, with things like philanthropy. Now, for those of you who are wondering why I'm clicking through the slides fast, because we've got a case study coming up later on. All of this is going to be up on my site. Um, I think you all know to find it. So don't worry about trying to take notes on all these things. The value is having Carmichael here. So Carmichael, uh, I'd love to just ask you the obvious question. We've got a bunch of people. In fact, let's get a show of hands. How many people in the audience are looking to build something in the way of a not-for-profit? Big number, very big number. It's probably, you know, that's at least 20% of the audience. So uh, how would you recommend people who are thinking about uh, building a not-for-profit look at funding? Yeah, I mean, you know, funding for any of these things is not easy. But I think mainly for the non-for-profit, what I've, what I've seen, and Michael's right, I've been involved with a few, which is kind of odd, right, because I'm at Northbridge doing a lot of non-for-profit-like stuff. Um, you know, initially what I would do is identify at least one really credible person um, who's willing to be, a, you know, a philanthropist and back you and, uh, and then help explain to others why they backed you. I mean, instead of doing like a broad stroke, how do I sort of shotgun meeting a lot of people hoping someone will donate, find one person that's incredible, it's very credible and passionate, that's willing to put some money in, but I think more importantly, put some time in to shoulder to shoulder and help you, um, you know, identify other funding sources. Excellent. So we'll have a chance to ask Carmichael more questions later on, but um, that's a great starting tip, and hopefully uh, those of you who are in that category will take a moment to uh, speak with Carmichael and hear some of the other things. Um, I will just give him a little bit of a plug. I've just been astounded at how creative the uh, use of finance or the, the uh, if like finding of finance and use of finance has been in Carmichael's companies that are doing everything from creating next generation solar panels to uh, in one instance, creating a, a stent that is as stretchable as rubber, as strong as steel, and dissolves in the body. Uh, a very long-term project. 
Uh, and so I think no matter what your venture is, there are creative ways to go about doing this. And I encourage you to explore them rather than just thinking everything has to be venture funded. Now, there is a special class of funding that comes up uh, quite often. And I get asked about this frequently, actually, usually by uh, companies that have got some period of, tra of time down the road. And that's strategic or corporate investing. So uh, think about this as, you know, if you're in the software world, VMware decides they'd like to make an investment in you, or Intel, who's got one of the largest programs out there. Should you take that money? That's a whole discussion topic in of itself, but I'm going to boil it down to two things. What's in it for you, first of all, and are your priorities aligned with theirs? Because what I see happens most on this one is that the investor, in their case, in many instances, has a very simple agenda, which is they're actually finding a way to hedge that a startup might come up with a better idea than something they're doing internally, and it's great free R&D for them. And that is not your agenda. Your agenda is probably building your business and figuring out how to get somebody, in many instances, who's got a bigger brand to give you credibility and help you get to market and maybe accelerate your path. And so if those things are not aligned, do not take the investor. That's not to say this isn't a great idea. In some instances, it can be company making to get an investor uh, who, for example, brings the brand that does enable you to get to market. But in that instance, what I would say is one other simple startup secret. Get the deal done first on the commercial level before you take the investment because that's the point you have most leverage. And many of these corporate investors are completely separated from the business operations. In other words, corporate development, and I'm not going to name any one of these companies, at you know, company XYZ, is miles away, usually in a different office, in a different city, in a different country in some instances, from the people who are actually going to take your product and uh, build, for example, a channel for you. So it does not follow that just because you got a few million dollars, or maybe even $10 million from a strategic investor, that you're set. You're now going to have their sales force trained and incented to take your business to market. And in fact, I've seen so many cases where that doesn't happen. So think carefully about this one before you take it, and particularly in the early stages, because expectations could be way, way out of whack. So let's simplify all this. I said we don't need to make this complicated. How should you think about what is right for you? In the end, there's a whole bunch of personal things I put up front. I'm now taking the more simplified Harvard approach and putting up a two by two. What quadrant do we not want to be in here? Bottom left? No, bottom left's actually great. Top left. OK, who said top left? Why, why top left? Well, your potential's small, so your opportunity's small, and it's going to take a lot of capital to get there. And so? Return's going to be not Bingo. Yeah, I mean, if it takes you a ton of capital and you've got a tiny opportunity, that's unlikely to be a great return. Uh, so what we really want you to do is think through, do you have something here that's got huge potential, and what's it going to take to realize that potential? Now. Obviously, if you can have a huge potential business that requires no capital, don't come near us. Go figure it out and build it. That's you know, Mr. Goodnight at SaaS who's got his $2 billion business. You don't need VCs or anybody else at that point. Go make it happen. But if your business is something like Carl Michael's uh, 480 Biomedical that's got to go through things like you know, trials and approvals and everything else, but by the way, it has the potential to change an industry. What's the stent industry worth today, Carl Michael? few billion dollars. He's so casual about that. I love that. Just a few billion dollars. Uh, it's got huge potential and it is capital intense. So guess what? It's a perfect candidate for VC funding. And that's the real point here. You should be able to cl clearly specify 
at least for yourself, and if not um, more specifically, work it out with the people you're getting money from, where you fit in terms of that uh, matrix. And what I'd encourage you to do is also do one other thing, which is early on, talk about the expectations for how long it's going to take you, because that's a big part of where things come unglued, is usually people have unrealistic expectations about how fast they're either going to grow the business or going to invest. And the earlier you clarify that, the better. So if you get through all of that, you probably are a candidate for VC, which is my day job. Uh, and I love this job because guess what? We do get to invest in great entrepreneurs, uh, whether it's uh, initially a seed amount uh, or follow-on rounds. And our goal is obviously to help build great businesses. But a couple of things to think about right off the bat. Some VCs don't do seed, and so you may need to find your seed elsewhere and then have that bridge to a VC. But lots of VCs now do seeds. They actually start with a guy and an idea. Um, currently, the fastest growing software company in my portfolio, actually number one in, in America too, is, is Acquia. We started that in our, comp in our offices with no capital and six months of work to figure out how we would put a business model together around an open source project. So really, the, t the first thing I would say is actually look for people who are willing to put the time in because it's the most precious resource, even beyond money. It should be a startup secret, frankly, is that the time intensity is more important than the capital intensity right up front. But if you get somebody to do um, your first round, the things you should start to think about are how far can they take you? Some funds, for example, only do early stage investments, uh, and they won't go past a Series B, for example. Other funds will only come in at C, D, or E. Uh, or you get other funds still that describe themselves as mezzanine, and they only do funding just before companies are going public. Obviously, the goal here is to find a fit for you. And in particular, look for what kind of participation and involvement you want from them. So right up front, I find people don't spend enough time on this. Just thinking about what are their expectations of a VC. Now, as I've said, this is a framework. I'm not trying to tell you these should be your expectations. I'm trying to get you to think about them. So are you looking for somebody, for example, who has operating experience? Or do you feel like you've got that nailed? You really want somebody who's a pure investment professional? They're very different classes of people. Many VCs now have come from uh, the operating background that has given them experience in that. But I will tell you, sometimes that's not the perfect fit for certain entrepreneurs. I was lucky enough to meet, for example, Rich early on. Rich is a true investment professional, has given me way better advice than I possibly would have got from people who would have confused the idea of being part of the operating team and got in the way. He had a wonderful question at pretty much every board meeting he came to, which is, what do you think? <laughs> it's the hardest question I ever had to answer. But guess what? It forced me to think, what did I really believe? And good boards do that, and if they have the right judgment, can help you stay clear in your thinking about where should the priorities be. And you don't walk out of the boardroom with 20 operating guidelines, uh, sorry, 20 operating ideas from somebody, but a clarity instead with one key thing that's really important that will move the business forward. So those are choices. Um, and as Maya said very well, you know, go figure out how to interview your VC and figure out you know, what are you going to get. Thoughts I have for you to think about are things like, do you want somebody who can help you build your team or your board? Um, in my opinion, that's very critical. Uh, and do you have, uh, for example, somebody who has access to the right kind of contacts that will help you get your business some unfair competitive advantage, which is, as you probably have all seen, my own personal positioning statement. That's what I want to try to do for my entrepreneurs, is help them get that unfair competitive advantage in one form or another, whatever it is. And then there may be other things you, you look for, like strategic insights or particular access to channels, et cetera. But whatever it is, have those expectations up front. 
before you start looking for money, because it's actually more important that that's clear. It's at the end of the day, guess what? Everybody's money is the same color. This is what makes the difference. Okay. Now the second part of our agenda. We've got the sex behind us. Um, it's the relationships and money. So I said I hope this could get simplified. And I really do believe that it can get simplified. But it's, this is something that requires a little bit of art rather than science. So let's start off with the science. VCs receive thousands of plans. You'd think that's great news. It can be great news. But the bad news is that most of them end up in the trash. And there's probably one reason above all that they end up in the trash. Can anybody tell me before I go any further what that might be? They're non-targeted. Yeah, that could be a great reason. Any others? There are lots of reasons, by the way. Time. Time, yeah. Time's a real challenge. It's very hard to read you know, thousands of plans as they come through or hear thousands of pitches, but we do. Um, what others? Chemistry. Chemistry, that could be a good reason, yeah. But before I even get to chemistry, what's, what's another challenge that we have? <laughs> well, now that would be a big problem. <laughs> the VCs don't have any money to invest. Well, it's actually happening. So, uh, yeah, now there's no question that if the VC uh, firms are not generating great returns, they're not going to have money to invest. Uh, so that's one to pay attention to. Check out their track record. Now, it turns out none of this is, is really the challenge. The real challenge is, with all this signal coming at us, or all this noise coming at us, how do we find the signal? And it turns out that what really helps us is when we know where that, signal's coming, that noise is coming from, so we can determine whether it's a credible source. Because otherwise, it's just too hard to filter that fast. So on your side, the first thing you're going to want to do is this, research. And most people do the basics. They, they grab the website, and uh, they find out about the partnership. And if you're in the Valley, you probably don't even bother doing that. You just say, oh, yeah, it's Brand X. They've been around for years. They've made a lot of money. I've got to go there. Uh, that's OK. I'm fine with you doing that. But you may want to think about a few other steps. For example, and you were getting to some of these, what is the fit? Do they even invest in this geography? Do they know the sector? Is this something they've done before? Am I at the right stage for them? Are they early stage or late stage? Do they have a portfolio that's complementary to mine? Do they know this space from other entrepreneurs? And never mind the partnership. Who's the partner, the individual that I'm going to want to talk to? Who has the right expertise or experience or even just interest in what I'm doing? That's very fundamental. And then what's that track record? Because otherwise they're going to end up with no money, as the gentleman in the back said. And then this is one of the least thought about things uh, since you raised it, which is not just do they have capital today, but have they actually done their capital planning so they've got free reserves to invest in you as you build your company? Because one of the tragedies that happened in 2008 is that even some very big firms, I, I won't name names, but some very big brand firms in, in the Valley just didn't have the capital to follow on as people got into a tough period. And so even though they had you know, great investments, they were forcing those investments to go out and find capital at the time and at least had opportunity to get it. So you want to check this out. Again, one of our, the great skills of, of Rich that I've learned is tremendous capital planning. And um, also, in our case, we're able to invest across funds because we have similar investors. So even though, for example, we're investing out of $500 million fund now, we're still investing out of the previous $500 million fund as necessary and still have reserves. And we're always thinking about how to make sure our companies have the full reserve that's necessary to take them from what we would say A to Z, which is 
you know, the first stage of their life cycle all the way through to being standalone or acquired. So those are the things I encourage you to do, but really the biggest thing that I was getting at is this. It's about building a relationship because to find our way through those things, even if you've done all that research and you've targeted us perfectly and we haven't got a clue who you are, you are part of the noise. Uh, now, I'm trying to change that, and I think a lot of VCs are, are, are trying to do this too. We're trying to make sure we are out in the community and actually making this process totally transparent. So I hope I get to meet you and you can you know, call me by first name. And that's the goal of, obviously, things like the iLab, and it's great we're doing this, but it's still tough. And so I would triangulate ways to connect with VCs, whether it's by going and blogging on their site, uh, or it's figuring out how to you know, meet them in an occasion like this, or get to the same conference as them. It makes a big difference. And at that point, you'll quickly start to run into a huge variety of things that people do differently. There is no one process. Every VC has a different process. I get asked it all the time. So what's your process for this? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. Um, one of my public companies now is Demandware. That deal took eight days for us to decide to do. I'm really happy it did, but we already knew about e-commerce. We already knew the founder. It was very quick for us to make the decision because of all the background we had on the thing. So it was an eight-day process. That's the good news. The bad news is some of the deals, and you know, I mentioned one that started in our office, took six months for us to even write the seed check because we were trying to figure out whether there really was a there there. We actually weren't sure we'd pick the right particular uh, founding team and so forth. So it depends on what's right for the particular opportunity. Now, I've got three simple words on here. Run your own. It's your process, actually, to run. And as much as anything else, you should be figuring out whether you are checking off the right things in your own criteria about finding the right VC, whether they're the right fit for you, whether there's somebody you want to work with. And that's the relationship piece. So let me at least be a bit more helpful and give you a basic framework. Uh, again, this will be on the site, so I'm not going to run you through the whole thing. Essentially, on your side, you should be doing the research and figuring out how to connect with the VC, meet them, get to know them, and bring them through diligence to a point where they basically can't wait to invest in you. That's your job. Uh, on the other side, you should know that what the VC is doing is basically the same thing. Now, some VCs um, have no thesis, and they will just wait for great people. Other people actually have thesis that they're, a thesis that they'll write. For example, I was lucky enough to really see uh, some great things from my partners, Jamie and Rich, in the mobile space. And so we sat down and, and made a, a thesis about what was happening in the enterprise mobility space. And out of that came an investment actually in one of Maya's companies, Aperion. Uh, it was very easy for us, therefore, to quickly engage with the entrepreneur. But lots of VCs don't do that, in which case you're going to have to teach them and you're going to help have, have to help them qualify the opportunity and be ready to do that. You know, be ready to take the approach that's relevant to your particular situation. The thing that's interesting in this process is as follows, that there's a big part of it that happens around socializing. And people sort of often think about this as, you know, um, well, optional, let's put it that way. But if you're going to date somebody and ultimately marry them for at least several years, I think you're going to take a little bit of time to get to know them. And so don't ask us whether we can rush this through in seven days. Do you really want to get married after seven days? I doubt it. Uh, take the time to figure this out. And so literally from the first connection, start thinking about that. The first connection is a very critical one. It's often where things go wrong. So I've tried to give you a little bit of a sense of what should be in that. It's basically the who, what, why. And if you can very quickly tell us your story, um, and for those of you who want to get more detail on that, that was last week's workshop or last um, month's workshop. 
and it's all up on the site. I've got a template up there, which is, you know, how do you put the perfect pitch together? And it's designed to give you at least the basics of how you introduce what you do uniquely well for who and put it in a story that at least in the first session will get their attention. But it's all you're trying to do at the first meeting is get to the next step. I would encourage you, and I've told people this in that uh, session, not to spew your entire business plan out on the phone with us and try to get us to buy the whole thing in one mouthful. That very rarely works, and yet you'd be amazed how many times that's what happens. Hi, I'm Joe. La 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 la. It's you know it's tough for us to digest it all. Remember, we're seeing hundreds of these. But on the other hand, if Joe gets on the phone and says, "Look, I've figured out how to build a scent that is stronger than steel, and more flexible than rubber, and by the way, I think I can do it in a way that's bioreabsorbable, and we think we've got the best team." out of George Whiteside's lab to get behind that, I'm paying attention. And I don't need any more than that at that point. I'm going to want to go see Carmichael Roberts, trust me. So you just want a hook, and you want just enough, and that's the who, what, why. Now the next thing I would encourage you to do is think about the process just like any sales process, except it's a very special relationship. And so you should figure out your own way to build momentum. What I mean by that is at every step, hopefully, you and the VC is beginning to feel like this is something you want to take to the next step. And that's like everything, something you want to build momentum. Yet I see most VCs and entrepreneurs get stuck in this stage here, where they've met and they've kind of pitched each other or you know, gone through the basics of the thing, but they don't know what's next. It's that awkward third date where, you know, okay, you're on first base, now what? Um, can get tricky right there. So what do you do about that? I think the most important thing to do is constantly develop in your mind what you feel are the progress points to share with the, uh, the VC and go validate it with them. So I actually happen to have an entrepreneur. I won't call him out by name. We've been lucky enough to work with him in the audience. He has done a magnificent job of constantly telling me, here's what I'm going to do. And by the way, I want to share with you, you know, when I'm ready, how it's turned out. And sure enough, he's come back regularly you know, sometimes it's a couple of weeks, sometimes it's a couple of months, but he's constantly come back and shared with me how he's progressing. So we're building our relationship, he's building credibility with me, and every time he does that, I get to know a little bit more about the business. There's a natural momentum building, as opposed to coming in and pitching it all up front and making a whole bunch of promises that you can't fulfill, and then you're stuck. So I really encourage you to think about this as building momentum. Now, the biggest challenge I see entrepreneurs face in this one is that they expect themselves to have all the answers. And I'm amazed how many times entrepreneurs will come to us and say, well, you know, I'm not sure I can pitch you because I don't have a complete financial plan. I didn't have a complete financial plan for probably six months into my first business. I didn't even know what a financial plan was, by the way, but that's a whole other story. Uh, the reality is we don't expect entrepreneurs to have all the answers. We don't expect them to have complete business plans. Most entrepreneurs, when we see them, are incomplete in at least one of these six categories. Team, product, value proposition, go-to-market, business model, and I left off one other, which is financial plan. They're incomplete in at least one of them, if not all of them. So my real recommendation to you is to make sure that instead of worrying about any of that, you have at least one area that you really stand out in, because that matters. Preferably, it's something like a perfect um, you know, 10 in terms of your background experience to solve the particular problem that you're going after. So you know, when Carmichael 
uh, for example, to use, keep using that example, talks about you know, what his team is, and it, it's a group of people out of the, the Whitesides lab. They're uniquely qualified to solve that problem, as it turns out. But there was also an element, as it turned out, of materials, right? Where was the, the other part of the team from? Uh, MIT, Bob Langer's lab. Bob Langer's lab. Another incredibly valid source. I mean, it probably doesn't get any better. Have those guys ever actually worked together on a board before? No. So that, there you go. I mean, now we're talking a completely obvious thing, standout thing. Bob Langer, George Whiteside's on the same board doing something truly unique. I mean, that stands out. I don't give a damn whether they've figured out what their business model is or how the product's going to come together at that point in time. I'm going to pay real attention to that. And so this is what we're looking for. We're looking for you know, real standouts, even if they're incomplete, rather than a very generic, broad brush set of things that covers all the bases but really isn't exciting on any one of them. OK, so the dating game. It's really not a game. It's a very specific function. It's dating and validating. And this is important because it's not typically thought of as something entrepreneurs do. It's typically thought of as something that, that the VCs do, and that's the diligence. It's actually important to you. So I've already said this to you uh, in enough uh, form that I'm not going to go into it tonight. In fact, there's a post up on LinkedIn if you want to read about it, which is how to evaluate investors. The VCs on the other side of things will be doing the following work, so you expect it. They'll be getting to know the team. They'll be doing blind references. Doesn't matter what references you give us, we're going to find out who you haven't told us about, your peers, people you've worked for, or if you haven't had a job before, just spending time trying to understand how did you form your team. We're trying to obviously understand the business, and thanks to the lady who raised this earlier, we will try to understand all aspects of it, even if there are lots of it that are incomplete. Because even if it's just to say to ourselves, OK, we know we need to find somebody who's going to help figure out the business model here or that's something that we need to work on as a value prop, or whatever it might be. And we're trying to check under the hood. Usually, uh, we're not smart enough to, to know anywhere near all the areas that come to us. So we'll get experts from the field, other investments that we've made, to come in and work with you. And in many instances, this is a great learning experience for yourself. So don't view it as, oh my god, I've got to do the diligence. View it as, hey, this is great. How would I get access to this person any other way? Why don't I use this as an opportunity to learn from an expert in, I don't know, Whiteside's lab or, or whatever, about this particular product I'm trying to bring to market. And guess what? As they're trying to validate assumptions, maybe you'll learn what you missed and try to identify for yourself how much you fill that in. This should be a collaborative process, is my point. It's not a, well, the VCs have got the microscope out. Oh my god, what am I going to do now? It's a, an opportunity for you to figure out where are the gaps, what could you fill in, how could you learn, who could you reference, and indeed see whether the VCs have got the network that actually can help you get there. OK, next big challenge, typically, is when do you get the term sheet? This is a toughie. Now, this is not a session about term sheets. There are lots of great sessions on those, and I'm happy to organize one if somebody wants. Uh, plenty we do at the iLab. But when you get the term sheet is very different, in my experience, from firm to firm. And there's lots of ways to characterize this, but I'm going to simplify it down to two. Some firms will give you a term sheet really early, and it could be you know, right up front. And that could be great if it's a really solid term sheet. Other firms will give you a term sheet after they've done the diligence and they're really clear that they're literally at the process where the only thing that's got to get done is the legal paperwork to turn that into documents. Which would you rather have? Anybody? Uh, I'd rather have the second one. And why is that? Uh, because it has more certainty, uh, because it's sudden at the time you're looking for the capital, you've got um, investment needs that are quite clear. So 
if they've done the diligence, then the probability of you um, closing that funding is much higher than if they haven't done the diligence. Couldn't have said it better myself. I need you up, up here next time. Um, now, what happens if somebody's already given you a term sheet really early on, and you like that firm, but maybe there's another firm that you also like a lot, and they haven't given you a term sheet yet, because they typically do it here. What should you do then? I mean, should you just take the early term sheet and say, go ahead. Compare offers. Make it so that you can talk with the VC about, OK, I have been shopping this idea around. This firm has presented me with this idea. What, what is your offering? What, what can you do to help me, help us achieve this dream together? That's a great thing to do. Now, what if all that goes great, and you've still got another firm out there who hasn't given you a term sheet, but you'd like to work with? Should you just carry on? Is, it, is this a happy relationship, or a yep. relationship that's Let's say the, the relationship is great. So you like everything about this, this firm, and they've given you a term sheet up here, but they haven't done the diligence yet. And you go back and say, I'm still shopping around. I like your terms. Where are you on the diligence? I mean, are, are, do we want to move this forward? Are my terms acceptable to you? Okay. And you, you basically you, you put the offers together, and you make one offer yield another. Okay, well, you haven't got the second offer yet. That's the part of the problem. And this, ha this is a real scenario, by the way. You're hoping you'll get this. So you've got a bird in the hand here, but the diligence isn't done. It's not easy. Anybody care to, to take this one on? Jeffrey, you've been through this. Give us a heads up. What would you do? I, I wouldn't sign the first term sheet. There's no way I'd sign that term sheet if there were any loopholes in there. I'd hang on to it. I'd keep working the second partner, and I'd be transparent about that. Okay. And, and what's going through your mind as you're doing that? Well, um, a startup secret you probably won't put up there, Michael. Venture guys are competitive. Oh, I definitely they don't like losing deals to other venture guys. Yeah. So to the extent you can turn the tables and make venture guys be pursuing you because they don't want to get excluded from the deal, that's a tactic that typically will accelerate a deal closing. I think that's, that's a great example. I think you were getting at that as well, right? I don't know your name, by the way. Nava. Nava. So Nava, thank you. Um, so I think there is a lot to go into this. I'm just going to try to simplify it down to three things. The first thing that I was trying to get across here that Jeffrey, um, I think, is hinting at too is that if you have a term sheet before somebody's due the diligence, to the point that Josfat was making earlier on, you're really not sure that they're actually going to get past the point of diligence and say, we'll do this deal. The diligence could go wrong. They could find out a whole bunch of things that they don't like. They don't really know you that well if they haven't done the diligence. They've only just met you, and you might have had you know, a great pitch with them. And the chemistry seems great, but the real work starts after that. So to the point Josh Fats was making, you're really not at a point where this is much of a commitment. Now, maybe they're a firm that's going to skip diligence, but that would leave me with a lot of questions. Um, very few people will go from term sheet to close without doing diligence. Uh, and I'd be very suspicious of that firm. So this term sheet is an interesting place to be, but this is a much better place to be in my experience where somebody's actually done the diligence and the term sheet now is something that actually means that they are going to close the deal and the only piece they're really going to go through at that point in most instances is legal. Now they may give you other expectations. They may say, for example, uh, if they're a later stage firm, we want an all hands partner meeting. Uh, that'll be the final thing you do. Uh, but I've even had deals blow up in that instance. 
not, not my deals, but deals that entrepreneurs have been bringing through for me. A $30 million financing blew up on me last year after all of this had been done and the term sheet was given here. At the final partner meeting, believe it or not, it blew up. And if you ask the company about it, that was six painful months. And they gave up a bunch of term sheets that were here. So that's why Jeffrey's point was so relevant. VCs, and I'll, I'll say anything up here, that's the whole point about this is, VCs are very competitive. So you want to keep them working until you've got to a place where you can really compare offers, which was your point, Nava, that are like for like. Because they weren't apples and oranges. That's what I was, I mean, so they were apples and oranges. That's the point I was trying to make earlier. Down here, they'll be like for like. So multiple term sheets down there, that's a great thing. But until then, you really don't have a deal. Why do you insist on some limited exclusivity? Great question. So um, Josphat asked, what if they insist on some uh, limited exclusivity? Rich, you deal with this all the time. What, what would you do? Well, that generally happens in later stage companies. In an early stage company, I just say no. Because um, a later stage company where they're raising capital, but the, their survival doesn't depend on the short term, sometimes you'll get that. Sometimes that's a reasonable request when you're far enough down the track. But for an early stage company, I mean, it's all about relationship. And so anyone at an early stage investor that asks for exclusivity, isn't really you know, trusting a building relationship. Yep, I couldn't say, I couldn't say it better myself. Um, not only is it about relationship and, and should you say no, but in my opinion, it's not really the kind of relationship you want if they're trying to force something on you. The kind of relationship you want is a natural fit that, that feels like it's mutual. I mean, it's the equivalent of being told, okay, um, you know, I'm pregnant. Now what? I mean, that's just not where we want to be. We want to be in a situation where we have the option to, to move forward for valid reasons together. So you don't want to get too pregnant in your deal anywhere in this process. You want to be very clearly able to make your choice at the end together. All right. I'm going to be struck off the VCs if I carry on with this uh, line of argument. But. Is, a, is a VC who's willing to give you time to meet and connections within their network but not willing to invest Will they ever turn into an investment down the line? Or the fact that they're saying, we're, we don't want to invest in you, or we're, we, we think you have a lot of potential, but we're not investing at this time. Is, is that someone you want to keep in your pipeline and on your radar? Or is that someone that you just know as an individual, as, and the partner is a good mentor, but you move on? Carmichael, do you want to give Nava an answer to that? So if I were to <coughs> sort of sort of capture your, I think it's a great question. By the way, I couldn't see you because I was over there. Who, raise your hand if you, okay. I wanna make sure I, I, I see your face. Um, <coughs> so I'm gonna take your question, I'm gonna broaden it a little bit and answer it and then some. So you start talking to VCs and the real question is, when do you know that they're uh, serious and gonna do something with you versus when are you sort of, um, you know, meandering a bit, maybe they'll help you, maybe they won't, you know, how does all that uh, impact? Um, I would say, um, this is my experience as an entrepreneur and a VC, it, typically if it's meandering a bit, it, it's probably not gonna happen, all right? And I would say your probability goes from, you know, what was already low just to, you know, less than 5%, you know, and I'm probably being, you know, generous with it. Uh, and what is meandering a bit? I mean, meandering could be, that you are, um, you know, you're spending a couple of months. I mean, that's a, to me, that's a long time. I can't imagine that. I think anybody working with me would know 
uh, in less than two weeks whether how serious I really am or not. And if you and it would be crystal clear, it wouldn't be guesswork. So I think you know my, my general advice would be, uh, you get beyond a month and you feel uncertain, then it's probably not going to happen. And then your specific question, which is they're still trying to be helpful, I, I would say there are a lot of good people out there who are not going to necessarily do the deal, but will genu genuinely help you. Um, and again, I would just use your common sense to kind of fish that out. Um, I know I've done that a, a lot, where, but I'm pretty clear that I'm, I'm unlikely to do this. But I'm, I'm going to help. You know, I'm going to help out regardless. Great, thanks, Carmichael. Yeah. I have one piece of advice that I just give on top of that, which is uh, have a very simple conversation after every meeting with your VC and say, okay, so was this a good meeting, and do you want to move forward or not? Just qualify it. And uh, by the way, if you don't get a really clear sense, you want to kill it because your greatest. Uh, cost there is your opportunity cost of not going and spending time with the next VC and building the next relationship. And I see far too many entrepreneurs wait too long to really qualify, is that VC interested? If you don't feel they're interested, if you feel like, as Carmichael said, you've been a couple of months meandering around in the desert, give it up, move on, and find the next one. Okay, so uh, we are lucky enough to have Rich here, and uh, he, in my op opinion, literally epitomized this phrase in every dealing I had with them, which is the process of doing the diligence became the deal. We very quickly figured out during every stage of working together, what was this deal going to look like? How much capital do we need, et cetera? Unfortunately, not everybody can be a Rich Damore and be so successful as to endow a school like the Damore McKim School of Business at Northeastern. But thank you, Rich, for doing that. The whole uh, our local community is very grateful to you doing it. But he's a great VC, and that's the reason he got to do that. And so if you have to uh, find a VC who's not trained that way, train him yourself. Here are the questions. First of all, how much do you need? This is you know, the most important question, to, to my mind, uh, in, at least the, in the deal sense. The need piece is the piece I'm emphasizing. And by need, I mean run the numbers. If you haven't got an accountant, that's OK. We're not looking for 10th decimal point accuracy here. We're looking for an understanding of what do you think it's going to cost to get from whatever stage you're at to the next stage with enough validation and proof, as we talked about earlier, to say you've built value, reduced risk. And build the assumptions. It doesn't matter as much about the spreadsheet, but if you can assess things like the dependencies and figure out what it's going to take to get from A to B, that's what we're looking for. And you yourself need to know that long before you come and ask us for money. And you need to be able to say it for yourself, okay, I know it's going to take me this amount of capital. We typically recommend, by the way, and this is, again, it's a Northbridge-specific thing, but I think most VCs would say this, at least 18 months of runway. Can anybody ask, uh, think why 18 months? Yep. Because you have to raise another round, and that's time-consuming. Well said. Absolutely that. Because it typically c takes three months, even if you've got a very efficient process, to raise a round. So you really only got 15 months. But then guess what? You don't want to be right out of capital before you do that. So you probably start raising after a year. Well, a year's not going to give you enough time to get, in many instances, the proof you need. So guess what? You probably want 18 months of runway. Um, and that's the way to think about it. But you know, every business could be different. And you may say you need only six months of capital because it's so clear to you what you've got to get done in that six months that you'll be easily able to prove it. Or at the other extreme, you have a set of things like, for example, a, you know, an FDA approval process that's going to take way longer than that. And so you meet a different uh, amount of funding. So it's business dependent. So more important than the spreadsheet, as I said, are the assumptions. And uh, I always recommend that there's at least a cash flow projection in there. Don't worry about all the other detail. 
And for those of you who want to see this, all this is again up on the site's part of the perfect pitch. There's a set of financials and template for what are the minimum sets of things we typically look for up there. In the end, um, I look for one thing, which is what I call realistic optimists. So most of you will walk in with a plan that says we're going to go from zero to 50 million in three years by getting 2% of a billion dollar marketplace or 5% of a billion dollar marketplace. It's a great idea. Unfortunately, there are precisely less than 0.0001% of companies that do that. Uh, a few names that were considered fast growing companies at the time that broke that were things like Compaq or more recently things like Salesforce. The rest of you, I'm afraid, it doesn't happen. So you could come in with a plan that says, well, it's going to take you 10 years to get from zero to 50 million. Unfortunately, VCs are a bit more greedy than that. And they probably will look at that and go, Jesus, that sounds unbelievably boring. Why would we invest in that? So what you really want is a plan that looks a little bit more realistic, but has still got real upside in it. Now, the joke about this is, honestly, none of us know what's going to happen. That's why I said right up front, the plan's not as important as all the assumptions. And how you talk about them and how you're realistic about them is what we're going to be assessing. Now, the really funny part about it is all of this is wrong. What usually happens is this. It takes way longer than all of us thought it would. But if it's really successful, it's also way bigger. So in a nutshell, just trying to find that balance of being a realistic optimist, put your assumptions behind it. And that should help you in, uh, inform you know, how much you need. Now, the second question is subtly but importantly different, which is how much do you want? Well, we've really covered this already. It's make sure you uh, are thinking through all of the milestones. And as I said, have got about 18 months. But there's one other thing that's obvious here, which is you really don't know. So allow for what you consider to be an acceptable fudge factor or variation in, in all the things that are outside your control. And there are lots of them, let's face it. Number one is usually the market. Uh, how quickly will the market adopt your solution or how quickly will it develop, et cetera? So that brings me to the final question, which is putting that together, what should you raise? Now, why isn't that just the first two? Well, let's think about this. I said we we're going to talk about strategy tonight. One strategy might be a very dilution-sensitive strategy where you are very risk-tolerant and you have no problem at all absolutely taking the risk that you're going to nail your milestones, in which case you'll raise just what you need and not a penny more. And there are entrepreneurs I know, by the way, who are absolutely oriented this way, will never raise a penny more than they think they need. That's just fine. Uh, I would always recommend you raise it at that point in time to close it. I've seen some investors um, make, make that mistake. But these kinds of entrepreneurs certainly tend to be just-in-time entrepreneurs too. They raise it just before they need it, and they just nail it. And some great entrepreneurs take the strategy. Now, I see a lot of people there smiling at this and others even grimacing at the thought of it. Well, you might be in the second category. You might be one of those entrepreneurs who feels like you need to raise more than you need, and you know, money's cheap, and so hey, it's only a little extra dilution. I'm not that fussed about it. Uh, I want the extra cushion, and I want to have the room to get things wrong or to experiment. Well, then raise more than you need, and raise it before you need it, well before you need it. There's nothing wrong with either strategy. You just have to identify which one's right for you or if there's something in between. And that's the difference here that, in many instances, is subtle but very fundamental, including, by the way, getting comfortable with your investor being in the same place as you, because some investors love the top strategy, and some investors love the bottom strategy. And there's no right or wrong here. But what is important is that you're in sync with your investor when you go into that. So 
The last piece of advice is pretty obvious, which is either way, timing is everything, and you should assume the unexpected. The worst mistake we all make, I'm talking about VCs and entrepreneurs, is we overestimate you know, the pace at which things get adopted or the pace at which the business grows, and we underestimate the amount of capital, and then we find ourselves in a position where we're not raising money from strength. That's not where you want to be ever, no matter which of those strategies you take. So early on, try to be thoughtful about your timing and expect the unexpected. What other factors are there? Well, some businesses are very predictable. So, uh, you know, for example, if you've got a business that's driven entirely by transactions and you can see transactions every day, as for example, in the case of an e-commerce business, then that's actually a great way to be able to uh, look at how your, your future cash needs might grow. If you're a business that's inventing something and you've got to get approvals processes through things like government agencies, I would argue that's a pretty unpredictable business and you need lots of leeway. So think about things like how predictable your business is and build that into your uh, fundraising and, and requirement about it. Now I also put one other thing on here, which is sometimes you're in a marketplace where there's what I would describe as either winner-take-all dynamics uh, or the classic uh, Jeffrey Moore uh, sort of example where the gorilla takes 60% uh, of the marketplace uh, and then the second player, the chimp, takes 30% and the rest fight for the last 10%. If that's the case, your balance sheet probably matters because customers are going to look at who's got the credibility. And that, by the way, may be more than cash, but this could be a factor in it at least. And so it can be important to have an, a strong balance sheet. I've certainly seen that in some cases. And last but not least is valuation. It's actually the $64 million question. And it's the one where most entrepreneurs get really stuck. And I've already told you, you know, how to think about this, which is you know, strategy about whether you're dilution sensitive or not. In my opinion, this is the least important question to, to think about. Why? Because I've modeled it hundreds of different ways. And I'm happy to share these models with you. Every time you go back and look at how much you haggled up front on the valuation, and then you look at the end outcome, the question's really the same. Was the business successful or not? If it wasn't successful, it doesn't matter if you owned 100% of Joe Blow. Now, if it was successful and you managed to own 1% of Google, I'll take that all day long over Joe Blow. And so it's really about how can you figure out how to uh, set your capital up to be a part of your success and not a problem for you. And for those of you who want to get into this, I'm happy to do a sort of a, a deeper dive on it. But what I always recommend entrepreneurs do is this. They project out the valuation, not for this round that they're taking, but where does it take them? in terms of the next round. So in this simple model, which again, you'll see up on the site when I throw it up there. If you raise money, for example, of five on five, s uh, simple series A, and so uh, you expected to get 100% growth, and you just did some basic calculations. You, you said, okay, well, my pre-money, sorry, my post-money was $10 million, and next time I'm gonna wanna raise another $10 million, and I'm gonna wanna do it at a nice step up. I'm expecting to double the size of my business or get all this proof, et cetera. Then that's a $20 million pre-money, add 10. I'm now at $30 million post-money for the next round. So that's the, the ramp I'm on. What does that imply in terms of just some basic things that I might have to do? I'm going to use a simple revenue multiple of five. I mean, this is really basic math. That implies I've got about a $6 million revenue run rate. Do you really think you're going to have a $6 million revenue run rate at the end of your Series A? I don't know. Maybe you are. And maybe that's absolutely great. But if you're not, and your math is taking you such that you're actually going to do this, which is scenario B down here, you're going to be out of whack. Everybody's expectation is going to be out of sync when you raise your next round. 
if you're only on a $3 million revenue run rate. Now you try to raise money at a, at a double and all your team's disappointed and everybody's out of sync. And this goes on all the time. What's much more important is that you then therefore have the conversation early on with your investors about, okay, never mind the round we're raising now, the A, but what's going to happen in the B? How are we thinking about the C? I'm just saying one, one round ahead. It's too hard to think beyond that. And always put the vector out there and think about what is it that you're setting as expectations together that you can get in sync on that when you end up raising the next round, you've met all those milestones we talked about earlier, including the financial one that adds up to the right valuation. So more another time, but hopefully that gives you a sense of why uh, thinking about valuation vectors is so important. All right, one simple startup tip here is therefore to summarize this, don't just value things, evaluate them. Always be one round ahead of thinking, put it in all your metrics and think about the things that uh, the unknowns that you might have to do, including the time to fundraise. Um, and at the end of the day, think about what we're trying to do, which is make sure you have the capital to capitalize on what your opportunity is and no more. Now, entrepreneurs also play this game, so I'm just going to try to get rid of it. They try to put up the ultimate expert potential. They say, well, Salesforce went public at X uh, you know, billion dollars or you know, Genentech uh, was worth several billion dollars and, and I just applied their multiples to mine and you know, we're going to get there. You can play that game all day long. Unfortunately, not only do we not know, nor do you, and it really is meaningless. And trying to figure out what percentage you might own of this notional company that reaches those valuations, when by the way, the market will have changed by then, the multiples people are using will have changed, the competition will look different, it's just meaningless. So I really encourage you, if you have to do this, do it for fun, and then put it in your bottom drawer and forget about it. Um, but there is one tip that's very important along the way. Fundraising should be a continuous process. So between each round, to use that famous Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross uh, quote, always be closing. Uh, always be developing the relationships with the venture investors who are coming next for the next round. Develop between the, the rounds, make sure that they're ready when you are ready to say, I want to take money to get that closed. So I'm always amused at this point that just like that other slide, you know, I left off one important thing. I've left off one critical, critical piece here. Anybody tell me what that might be? What's, what's the other element uh, that's so critical to allow for in your fundraising? What's the other capital form that's absolutely essential? Debt, well, uh, that could be a piece of it. Revenue. Revenue is an important piece of it, but uh, what's important, what other form of capital do you want to build in your business? I talked about it on that first slide, and I said, here's everything on this slide, but we're actually trying to build underneath this a really great team. Hey, you were listening, that's awesome. I think the most important capital you'll raise is human capital. It really is. It's building this team, and so, Actually, the other factor for what you raise and how much you raise, and it's literally at least as important, is your option pool. Because this enables you to hire the people you want. And if you want the best, you're going to have to pay for them, and they're going to expect equity, and you're going to need to have that equity in your option pool. And you do not want to have to go and renegotiate that with your investors. So agree that up front. Make sure it's part of your thinking. And if you really value building a great team, get a big option pool and make sure you're ready to hire the best possible team you can. So let's summarize all that. What really matters is investor fit, picking the right amount of capital raised, including the human capital, and then timing it. And obviously there are other things to clear the bar like terms, et cetera. But I would summarize it all like that 
And to bring it back to basics, it can be fun when you finally raise it. So uh, it needn't be complicated. And I really encourage you to pick your own path to this and find yourself in this embrace as Woody Allen did with your investor, hopefully. Not literally, sorry. <laughs> All right, well, I was just the appetizer. And now we have the main course. And I'm delighted to have uh, Steve Papa here. And Steve was uh, literally at this juncture some uh, decade or plus ago with his company in DECA. So Steve, please come on up and jump in and grab the stage here and tell us your story and how it played out for you. Welcome, okay. Steve. Thank you, everybody. So just, um, I'll just do a quick, few quick slides on you know, what Indeca was, a software company. Um, the big idea was trying to make search much better. I'm not going to bore you with what our product was. You're all using it every day, whether you realize it or not. It's out there all over the web. Um, you know, it kind of made it easier for people to interact with products was kind of the initial idea. But then we ended up solving business intelligence problems for the world's largest organizations like IBM, which became our largest customer. We solved their thorniest problems, even though they're the world's largest business intelligence software company and services provider for business intelligence. Anyway, so uh, and then the ultimate conclusion was great, right? So in the end, we got a big number, sixth largest acquisition ever by Oracle when it was announced, although it's been eclipsed since then. But um, the um, and it actually, you know, this is a deal like any other, which was uh, 60 days from first call to announcement. Okay, so very quick, you know, you got a deal done. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about our difficult fundraising earlier in our uh, in a life cycle, which formed the behaviors, which is why I got that deal done in 60 days and didn't want the world to change before I could get it done. Okay. So um, the company was started just a few hundred yards from here, over in Hamilton Hall. And in fact, uh, there's the first version of our product in my dorm room at uh, Hamilton. That's the, you know, version 0.001 of our database. That Oracle ended up buying. So with that in mind, how many people here were in, the, in their professional careers in 99? Show of hands. There's a few. And so everyone, those folks with their hands raised knows, know how crazy it was then. Right? And this chart kind of exemplifies why it was so crazy. So venture capital as an industry, you know, kind of four to five billion a year being put into funds, right? which, are, you know, which is, you know, it means about that much being put to work on a steady state, all the way to you know, over 100 billion in 2000, okay? So what that means is lots of money is being shoved out there in Series A's, right? So that makes it pretty easy, right? In fact, when we were founded, it was there. It took me three days to get the original angel financing. Actually, had several venture firms. Actually, um, one of my uh, professors over at school ultimately uh, invested as the third one in that angel round. And um, by the end of the year, we had a great you know, uh, Series A uh, financing, and um, we were off to the races. So um, getting to that first customer was really easy. You know, <coughs> you know, even though we were a basic research project, actually this is an important point, we got funding to do something that should have been built in a university and then spun out. But because it was the bubble, we could assemble a team of scientists and we got funding to do it. And we're going to come back to that why it's so important. Macroeconomics matters so much in terms of what you can do at any given point in time. The, um, we got lucky bringing the right scientists together. The, uh, like I said, the funding was easy. We got a set of highly credible venture capitalists and individuals. Right? That both of those were very important. And then the first customer was a six-week sales cycle in the summer of 2000. Right? So think of all of you guys trying to find customers. of a several hundred thousand dollar customer, very conservative financial services company. 
okay? So, and we were conservative, so we focused on getting them live for the next six months. We didn't want to get five customers. We want to do it the right way, right? We're going to get that customer, make them successful, prove it out, and then scale. So in December of 2000, we start looking for customer number two, okay? We get to talk to a lot of people. By, December, by January 2001, all those people were fired. So the world had changed. Basically, it was a, you know, all these internet groups looking to do new things were gone. So we were trying to find customer number two. Um, unfortunately, while we're looking for customer number two, we're on the other side of this macro private equity situation, or, or venture situation more specifically. What you'll see is, you know, the amount of capital raised, you know, declined to about a third. So that means all those companies that were funded the year before, now, I mean, they're, you know, and a lot of stuff Michael talked about was sort of this idea of 18 months. Then, I mean, the different set of rules people were operating under. So everyone's looking for capital. So if you thought those thousands of business plans were tough, try standing out when everyone's trying to, you know, triage their own portfolio and you're trying to find capital, right? And all, and your existing investors, right? They can't, they're really reticent to, to lead an internal round because they don't want to set price. It sets problems with their limited partners. There's a whole set of cascading things. So you're kind of out on your own. Okay, uh, that doesn't mean we didn't get help and introductions. I mean, I spoke to just about every venture firm, you know, that I could identify um, over the course of nine months, right? And, um, you know, um, the other challenge that was happening while we, we were needing funding, um, originally I had a, a goal of finding some customers that were going to help us fund this and stretch our runway, okay? But this was the first year-over-year -year decline in IT spending ever, okay? So this is an industry for 40 years. Spending's going up and up. New companies, oh, I got discretionary money to spend on new things. All of a sudden, it declined. So all the discretionary stuff was gone. And this was one of my, you know, one of the quotes that was very painful. I'd, I'd run into people who'd say, I spent $8 million last year trying to solve this problem. It didn't work, but you solve it. But I don't have any money to spend with you, okay? So very painful. Okay, we built a great product, great technology, yet the world had changed. Like the rug had been pulled out from under us. Um, the initial inspiration for our technology was solving a business problem in e-commerce. And this goes to one of the things about the investment community. It swings like a pendulum, right? And it's not always rational. Okay, so for instance, in 2001, what we were told, e-commerce was dead. Can't make any money in e-commerce software. And we all know how laughable that is, but that's what I dealt with, talking to person after person, okay? So the good news is, while we were out pounding the pavement, right, who wants to be customer number two of a venture-backed software company, right, a year later from the first customer, and they're going to run out of cash in a few months, right? So not an easy set of circumstances. But we talked to lots of people. Okay, we had a few value-added angel investors that were great. One was a chief investment officer at another financial services company that kind of, um, you know, told his team, find a way to use this stuff. And so I think they had gotten tired of those demands over time. And so by the time we got to them, they're like, we had this problem over here, which, you know, which is incredibly difficult and none of us want to touch. Throw it to them. <laughs> so, but we embraced it. We solved that problem and we expanded our vision to be a platform company. So we no longer were just e-commerce, right? So we satisfied the main objection there. Um, you know, and, but we still couldn't get commitment. Uh, fortunately, in parallel, we were you know, doing what we could to build an experienced team which was very important, even more important than normal times because the pendulum swung from late 90s, experience wasn't important. In fact, it was a bonus to have less experience, you know, almost, right? It's a new world, people are thinking differently. Pendulum swings, 
It's a good thing we you know, had built a very strong team with lots of experience you know, during 2001. Um, so the, um, you know, like I was saying, we're gonna, we're gonna go through a, a, few, um, a few events that took place. We're speaking to every firm out there. As of August 1st, we have cash for another 10 weeks, okay? And so finally, after all that searching, we get a term sheet. And it's from what I'd call a bottom feeder. This was someone that the proposal wouldn't have been worth pursuing. I would have taken it so people would have had jobs, but I wouldn't have stayed much longer, right? Because it just, you gotta have incentives. People gotta have incentives to build a business. And if someone wipes out everyone, where's the incentive? You might as well start a new one. It's just a job at that point, okay? Um, and the better venture firms recognize that. Everyone's gotta be successful in it, okay? But by getting that first term sheet, suddenly the insiders had something to work with. They could, be, they could say to their partners, look, we've got an external pricing. It's gonna destroy the company. Let's do better than that so we can save it. But at least, you know, and it was, a, it was a down round that the insiders were proposing, but it was something that was bearable. Now, whether it would have remained bearable over the life cycle of the company, that's a hard question to answer, but it was a start. But that put in motion, we, there was another firm that in the background we'd stayed in touch with that had known a lot of members of the management team and um, had some success with the investors and members of the management team. I described them as the last venture firm on the planet that decided to get into tech, okay? So it's 2001 and for whatever reason they decided we should get into tech, right? And we were lucky, we found that firm. That was the first bit of luck, okay? The second bit of luck, and I wanna emphasize this word luck because especially in difficult times, anyone that's successful it, there's, there's, there's some amount of luck that happened to them, and, they sh and you, know, you shouldn't believe them if they say otherwise, right? In good times, the luck is the good times, or you know, the winds, you know, in your back, right? So while they were, so as we're trying to find additional customers that year, right? We build up about ten interested parties, right? So these are prospects, and I'm, I can't remember what weasel language we used to describe them, but it would have been something like, you know, people working with us, or some some you know choice language that is ambiguous, but not customers, because they weren't. But um, we're talking to all these potential investors, right? And they want to speak to references, because we haven't had a second customer, right? They want to get an idea of what's going on, right? And you can't have a prospective customer talk to 20 investors. That's kind of kill their confidence, right? You know, I mean, so, so you have to ration these very carefully, okay? And um, so of the 10, any given prospective investor may have gotten three names. And even that, we were very careful, okay? So this firm, we gave three names to, and uh, as luck would have it, one of the partners at this firm lived next door to one of the executives at a company called Arrow Electronics. So Arrow Electronics was one of the companies that was very interested in what we were doing. In fact, they were trying to solve a problem with their IBM mainframe that we were able to build a demo for that just crushed it, right? It just was so much better. And so they're having like, you know, probably talking over the fence, or maybe it's a barbecue. I mean, I imagine it, something like that. And somehow the name Endeka comes up. And the guy from Arrow is like, oh, that stuff is fantastic. And so here the partner at this firm thinks, wow, I just found some proprietary diligence, right? That really gets me, you know, this is, this is the real deal. Because otherwise, if you're an investor, you're always skeptical of the names that someone's provided to you. Just like when you're, you know, you have employee, uh, someone you're interviewing, their references, you gotta be skeptical. You always gotta find your, um, your um, proprietary sources for those, okay? So we got lucky there, huge luck. So over the uh, Labor Day weekend, 
As of August 21st, we got that insider term sheet, right? It was going to close on September 7th. So that's much better than the bottom feeder. But then this other firm comes in, right, on the 30th of August and works with me over Labor Day weekend to come up with a term sheet that we could present at our board meeting on uh, September, I don't know, let's say 2nd, I think it was, or 3rd. And um, th that board meeting was originally intended to ratify the insider term sheet. Right? We'd already started working with lawyers, okay? Um, you know, I made clear to my investors, I was still talking to others because I'd like to do better, but suddenly I had that other term sheet. So we had a decision as a board. Do we go with the term sheet that's going to close that Friday, right, which was, I think, the 7th, okay? Or do we go with the term sheet that's going to close a week later on September 14th? Okay, so a lot of, lot of discussion around it. And, and a lot of the discussion is around, are they a good partner, right? Are these people that have, you know, are they, you know, um, good ethics? Is it people we want to work with? A lot of stuff Michael was talking about. It's a marriage. It's not a, you know, it's, it's something, you know, as the entrepreneur, you know, keep in mind, these are the people that can fire you, right? They can, you know, cause a lot of pain on what you're trying to build. So you want to make sure you have compatible, you know, views of the world. Um, and, but that ethics piece, like, are these the type of people that are going to stand by you in tough times? Okay, that's something I would really emphasize. So, um, the following week, what happens? 9-11. Okay, we're right in the middle of this. Okay, and yes, there's a lot of horrible things going on, but we have our own little micro problem to deal with, which is I've got five, six weeks of cash, right? And then people are out of jobs, okay? You know, and so, you know, thoughts crossing the mind, do you... Um, you cut everyone's salary to minimum wage so you can keep benefits and stretch it out longer because you're going to need time because, you know, all bets are off. I mean, there's a, there's a term of art called force majeure, right? Act of God, okay? And that's basically in a lot of deals, that's the first thing people did. You know, a lot of backers, they just pulled the ripcord. Look, I'm not doing anything. There's too much uncertainty in this world, okay? So to the credit of this firm, Ampersand Ventures, they, um, they convened a partner meeting and they said, nothing about this company has changed as a result of 9-11. So they said, we're going to do the deal. And one of the partners was stranded in Minneapolis. If you remember, the planes weren't flying, okay? Got a rental car, drove back to Boston. We got the deal done the following week on the Wednesday. We lost three business days. I mean, that's insane, right? But that's why it's so important to pick the right partner, you know? And so it's so important for you to check the references on the partners that you're working with. Right? And there's some of your, you got to cultivate some of your proprietary references, not just what someone's providing to you. Okay? So, the, um, let's see. So, some of the lessons, right? So, we can bring this to a close. Macroeconomics matter more than almost anything else in all of this stuff. If it's a very favorable environment, it's going to be a lot easier and you're going to have so much more negotiating leverage. If it's a terrible environment, I mean, you know, we could, we could make you a ninja at fundraising, but the, 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 if you were to build the, uh, you know, the model, the statistical model, the variable around the economy is going to have more of an influence on the outcome than anything else. So the next thing is fundraising starts long before you're pitching to your investors, you know, whether that's building your team. A lot, Michael talked about a lot of this, whether it's the relationships. The reason why I was able to get my first seed financing in two or three days is because there was cultivated relationships over prior months. Sometimes you, I mean, I also raised $25 million in five weeks from first meeting and never meeting someone before. So it depends on the environment. You can go both ways, okay? Um, get any term sheet and never stop looking for options until the round is done, okay? Even one that might be squishy, my personal belief is it's something that you can work with, right? It sort of puts others on notice. 
you know what, something's going to happen, and, you, and it gives you something that you can manage to, to get to, a, to, a, to an outcome. The next thing is in venture, it's a multiplayer game. Relationships matter for the long term. So this is the condensed version of the presentation. I could talk a lot about some of the um, negotiations and you know, horse trading with some of our existing investors that got us all to a happy place as we went through you know, some of these difficult times. Um, so you don't want to sort of take your funding raising event as it's, it's this one time. You're going to use whatever leverage you've got to get the best possible deal. You want to try to do what's a, a fair deal. Okay, in the context of the macro environment that, you in, that you're in. And you know, hopefully, if you picked a good partner, they'll return that favor when times are tough. Okay? The, um, we already covered this. Um, luck is not optional. Okay? So just to be very clear, you, know, you can have a great plan, be very capable. But if you don't have luck on your side, it's, and it's not going to get done. You don't, you don't be too hard on yourself, but you've got to cultivate luck. So it, you know, it doesn't just happen. Right? You've got to do things. Like if I wasn't pounding the pavement, talking to all those prospective customers, I wouldn't have cultivated that luck. Okay? So um, the last one is once you agree on a deal, get it done before the world changes. Okay? And we're all products of our environment. Okay? And having gone through 2001, having gone through 2008, 2009, okay? in fact, um, you know, to, to close this out, when we were in, in 2011, when we received an offer from a large company to acquire Indeca. At first, we were ignoring it because we just released tons of R&D. We're very excited about where it's going. And you know, it's like, just keep going. But in early August, the US lost its AAA status. Actually, it was very coincident around when we got the first offer. But US lost its AAA status, right, the Treasury bonds. And Europe, there was a one in four chance Europe could cause another 2008, 2009. And after having gone through that twice, there was no way I was going through another one of those with a thinly capitalized company. I mean, those are tough things to deal with, okay? And so it was, how fast can we make something happen? So we didn't hire a banker. We just, you know, we called up the people that we knew that, you know, we were, we were you know, fairly sizable acquisition, so it sets to a small number of folks. Called up Oracle. They'd always told me if we're going to disappear, to give them a call. I said, look, we're going to, we might be disappearing. I understand if you don't want to waste time on the deal. And uh, two days later, had the sort of pitch of our lives, pitching to the senior executive over the phone at Oracle. We kind of knew we had nothing to lose, so we just punched him in the nose. We called this baby ugly in some cases, you know, in a sense that how we could help what, you know, complement their product line. And you know what? He recognized we were bringing database technology to the world of search. Within 10 days, we had a letter of intent. And um, we just raced to get through diligence and paperwork. You know, just cut through all the red tape we could to get it announced. So two months, so 60 days is kind of a record for that size transaction, no banker, et cetera. It's a product of experience that when you have a deal on a table, get it done. So with that, I'll uh, you know, do it next week. Hang with us for a second. So thank you very much, Steve. I'm sure all of you feel like you're actually living that experience the way you just described it. And, it's, and it sounded tiring, frankly. So I'd love to encourage questions from the audience. But before um, uh, we do, just so everybody can start thinking of them for, for Steve here. And by the way, we started about 15 minutes late. So we're just going to give you a chance to, to, to jump in here. You know, right at the beginning, if you can go all the way back there, what, what made you decide to do an A rather than a seed? And you, and you mentioned, you know, this thing should have been funded in the university. So say more a little bit about that, because well, we've got well, a lot of people here thinking yeah, through it. Yeah, and I, and I rushed through it. But the reality is we had used, actually, a convertible debt note 
in the summer of, 2000, of 1999, yep. which raised about a million and a half. And then we raised a Series A, which really was the B. I mean, it's yeah. the terminology is, you know, you can pick whatever letters you want. But um, that closed in that spring. Right. So the first thing was around a million and a half to two, and then we closed an $8 million round in the spring. And right. then in the fall of 2001, we, closed, we did a first close of, I think, something like 12 million, because we wanted to get money in. And there were a few others that needed more diligence. You know, we did a second close to, to finish it up. Makes tons of sense. So questions for Steve. Hi there, that was very inspirational and, and nerve wracking just he hearing you go through the process. I wanted to actually rewind to kind of pre-99, you had entered business school. Uh -huh. I'm in grad school right now as well. Um, wh what was kind of, can you talk about the ideation kind of process, what you were thinking, kind of your technical background? I know you made some hires that were sure. significant throughout the process. So I'll give you just 30 seconds of my background. I studied operations research in undergrad. Um, didn't, I mean, didn't know anything about the world of consulting and banks, which was fortunate, because I went and worked for a old line company, NCR Teradata, okay? Big company, was actually losing a lot of money at the time, it was part of AT&T, and um, I became a product manager. So product management is the first thing to take away from that, in a place where a lot of people could teach me things, right? They also learned, taught me a lot of, you know, how not to do things, you know, by observation, right? But I got a lot of responsibility early on, I ended up, though, at a startup on the West Coast called Ink to Me, which was the Google before Google. I was already into parallel computing, and so I ended up there, and I ended up creating their caching business, okay? Um, and um, I then went back to grad school, got involved with some startups while I was there. I was on the you know, 50K team for Akamai, could have dropped out, done that. Um, got involved with some others. And um, so as, but I, I'd already left a great startup to go back to school. So I'm like, I'm, fin I'm gonna go through school and then I wanna start something. That was, my, that was my plan. In the spring, start working on some different ideas. And one of my good friends from, from college, I said, you gotta come up here, something's gonna happen. And he had been trading on eBay, okay? And I'll, I'll, I'll make this much shorter because I can go into it in great detail, but it's, it's you know, in the interest of time. He was selling some stuff at these prices I couldn't believe, like stuff that you get for free selling for $50 on eBay. And I'm, I'm like, at those prices, I wanna sell everything I own. And so we're doing a thought experiment. You know, um, you know we, we look for some objects on there and the same item would have many different prices. And it's like, well, that's not an efficient market. What if we could capture the prices as, as auctions expire and build a, a price catalog, right? So imagine a stock market, you didn't know less trade, it wouldn't be very efficient, right? So we did some analysis. We imagined, you know, we had 100 million things in one place that was a canonical catalog of the items sold. And again, it's a thought experiment. It's not an easy thing to do. And then we thought, well, if you're gonna monetize this, something's gotta be three clicks away, okay? If you take 100 million things, though, and build a taxonomy of that, you know, and you allow for things to be in more than one place, you quickly find that you'd have to be about 30 levels deep in order to get to an object. And if you say assign a probability of 95%, you pick the right choice each step of the way, it's zero that you ever get there. And at that moment, we, we realized the problem to solve is how do I type in a concept? In this case, it was Sinatra, right? We were, look, building, we were looking at Sinatra memorabilia and get a Sinatra store instead of a Sinatra list. And basically what we had um, recognized inadvertently is a core challenge of relational databases, which is if you know the perfectly formed question, you can ask that of a database, right? But how does a database give you the relevant questions to ask? So we kind of inverted it. 
and we had to build the technology to do that. But it turns out because it was a fundamental database problem, it's the same problem that exists in business intelligence. So it shows up in a bunch of places. Okay. By the way, actually, I'm going to add one thing just before we lose that. What Steve just said there was just a perfect example of a story that if you could tell that to an entrepreneur is going to get them absolutely hooked. Because it was a real world example of something that Steve had experienced with a very real problem that you could instantly see would have huge implications in e-commerce or business intelligence. That's just such a great entrepreneurial instinct that Steve has that I just encourage you to recognize and think about how are you forming your potential opportunity, and how will you tell that story? I hope you don't mind me putting on the spot like that. But, but, but presumably that story, you played that story over and over. <laughs> until I was blown in the face. Right. So uh, that story for 10 years. There so. you go. And it, had, it didn't really change, till, even to the end, right? I mean, there was a lot of you know, things along the way, but effectively, that's what Oracle bought. Yep, Oracle exactly. bought that story. I probably used that story when they did diligence. Yeah, so it's worth remembering. So. You know, zero to a billion dollars, that was the story. Uh, sorry, question at the back. Sorry. And this, this is a general question, and this can be for anyone else who's, who's been up in, to speak as well. Um, but talking a little bit more about uh, the human, building the human capital, um, I'm, I'm at a point where I need, I need to, to, to really dig into this, but I'm trying to bootstrap myself. How do I convince uh, the people and the right people and find those right people and um, get them to do it for peanuts and equity? Um, okay, so it's your persuasiveness, right? Um, <laughs> The, um, how desperate they are. <laughs> no, I'm just, but I mean, it's, all, it's no different than selling any investor. They're investing their time, okay? Which, is the, which most likely is their scarcest resource. So they got to believe in the opportunity. They got to believe in you, okay? You know, how do you sell yourself to them, right? Is your background appropriate for it, right? And sometimes you may not get your A list. It's like you're recruiting a, you know, a baseball team. You may not get your first round draft picks, but can you get a second or third round Right? Make some progress and build up from there. Okay? But there's no magic to it. I think it's, it's, it's you know, the, the best thing you could do is if you've got a few people that might be more credible than you in that particular market because they had specific experience, or maybe you have all the credibility. If you do, then you're not going to have a problem probably getting someone to work with you. But you can get some others to help vouch for the opportunity and help you with that. Right? So getting you know, some friends, advisor types that might be very specific to that market could be very helpful. Um, Great question. Go so ahead. I'm just, I'm curious. Um, you went through two rounds of, of raising, um, and you went through hell and back, going through the different economic downturns. What made you say, we're going to go acquisition this time? Well, I didn't have another option in those other two okay. times, okay? So, <laughs> um, and I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's as much art as science as to assess, you know, what's the value of what you created? What's the risk in going further? There are a lot of other constituents. You have not only investors, but you have people who invested time over many years, right? And this is an opportunity for them to, you know, have the resources to go start something, you know, that sort of thing. So there's a lot that goes into the calculus, right? There's no simple answer. You know, also, you know, it was preferable to not be a public company as far as I was concerned. Right? There's a lot of reasons we could go into on that. It's like almost a whole discussion. But um, you know, there's no, no one thing I can point to, but having the option gave us the you know, chance to consider it. I mean, was part of that process also looking out for your people? I mean, it's, it's really, I, I'm very empathetic and sympathetic to that point, 
um, that you you look out for your people as mm -hmm. much as you look out for the company because they are your company. Yep. And I'm just curious, like, was, I mean, this, it sounds like you went with what would help them and the company survive, but I'm curious, was your going with Oracle the most beneficial deal for your capital, your human capital? The, um, it turns out, I mean, it was, I, 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 the, basically the question was we had more than one option than Oracle. Was that option going with Oracle also the best for the people at the company, right? And the, it, both options had pros and cons, sure. okay? So it wasn't like a clearly dominant thing, right? I was uh, pleasantly relieved when we made the announcement and people knew what the other option was. Quite a few people came up and said, I'm glad you made this choice, okay? So that, that felt good. And in the end, you know, I think it was the right choice for, you know, um, for a lot of reasons. Well, just to keep us on time, I'm going to say a very uh, big thank you again to Steve. We really appreciate it. It's absolutely terrific. Um,